0: Well, good morning, everyone. We'll be continuing our study of the, of uh, studies in Isaiah, selecting a few uh, topics that relate to the book of Isaiah rather than trying to do a verse-by-verse examination of the whole book. Uh, we mentioned something last week about the unity of Isaiah, and we want to look at that in a little more detail uh, th- this morning. So uh, this is going to be our topic for this morning. Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, we're so grateful that we can have this time to come together and to give our attention to a study of a portion of your word. We're thankful, first of all, that you have revealed yourself in your word, and uh, we're thankful for those who have preserved your word so that we can have it today and read it as a... You have revealed it to your servants in times past. We're thankful for the people of the Old Testament who are examples to us today that we can look upon their lives and how they lived and learn from them. And we're thankful especially at this time for the message that you have revealed to us in, in your book that Isaiah wrote and we're thankful that uh, he was so dedicated to your service and he was willing to uh reveal your message to the people of his time now we ask your presence be with us in our study of this portion of your word and be with the other classes and and the teachers the students that uh, what is taught and what is learned uh, will be in accord with your will and that we can all work together to bring honor and glory to your name and to the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, the unity of Isaiah. This is very important because of the modern critical view of the book of Isaiah is that the the book of Isaiah is not one complete whole unit, but is made up of a number of different documents written by different people at different times. Uh, the only way that Isaiah could have possibly have written the entire book of Isaiah is by special, divine, supernatural revelation. There's no way at all possible that he could have written the book by his own intuition, uh, by his his own uh, judgment, by his own insights. Um, the only way he could have written this book is uh, by a divine divine supernatural revelation and in this way i think we can consider the uh, unity of isaiah as a proof for supernaturalism and we'll see how, how this uh, is uh, developed uh, as we proceed in our in our uh, uh, discussion this morning Today, there are many, many modern Bible scholars who reject the idea that there was only one Isaiah who had uh, special divine supernatural uh, help to uh, write, write his book. They believe that there was at least two Isaiahs, maybe even more as far as that goes, who contributed to the contents of the book. One who composed the main division of the book, as we saw last week, there are two main divisions, chapters one through 39 and chapters 40 through 66. Uh, They believe that there were uh, more than just the one man Isaiah who composed this book Uh, and someone uh, who uh, wrote the second part of the book of Isaiah must have been someone else different than the man who wrote the first part of the book. Uh, This uh, There's no one individual that is named as the author of the second part of the book. It's simply referred to as a a second Isaiah or Deutero-Isaiah, as the author of this book calls it. And he says that this is a commentary on Isaiah 40 through 55. Well, why forty through fifty-five? I Thought there's sixty-six chapters in the book of Isaiah. Well, that's true. Well, that's because there are a lot of scholars today who believe there's also a third Isaiah, a Trito Isaiah. So there's a first Isaiah, which is the Isaiah that we we're uh, familiar with, and then there's second Isaiah that's called Deutero Isaiah, and then there's a third Isaiah who is often referred to as Trito Isaiah. So. This is the uh, common uh, modern view of the composition of the book of Isaiah. Um, These modern critics uh, reject the unity of Isaiah because they have accepted a theory of prophecy that makes it impossible to believe in the unity of Isaiah. Uh, This modern theory assumes that uh, prediction of distant uh, future events is impossible. Isaiah lived, uh, of course, as we uh, indicated last week, he lived in the 8th century B.C. And at that time, the main foreign nation that was on the scene was the nation of Assyria. And the first part of Isaiah uh, reflects this historical background, chapters 1 through 39. And uh, as we proceed, our see in our study of Isaiah that... Uh, <clears throat> Assyria comes up quite often in, in the prophecies that we read in, in Isaiah. The second part of the book, chapters 40 through 66, reflect the Babylonian, the exile uh, period in the history of the, of the Israelites. And this, of course, is many, many years later than the time of Isaiah. So how could Isaiah have known what would happen during the exile if the prediction of future events is impossible, as believed by many modern scholars today. So the author of the second part of Isaiah must have been someone else who lived during or soon after the exile, the the so-called second Isaiah. The only way Isaiah in the 8th century could have possibly known about the future Babylonian exile and uh, write about things that relate to that period of time And then the freeing of the exiles later on under the the leadership of the Persian king Cyrus, and Cyrus is mentioned by name in the book of Isaiah. How could Isaiah, who lived in the 8th century BC, know about the future Persian king Cyrus? The only way would be by special, divine, supernatural revelation. So in this way... Uh, the unity of Isaiah, we, we can consider it as a kind of a type of proof of supernaturalism because Isaiah received uh, this information by supernatural revelation. So why is it that modern scholars today reject the idea of any kind of supernatural special revelation? Well, this is just, just the uh, age in which we are living. In our modern age today, this uh, hostile attitude toward the supernatural that's so prevalent today is actually a rather recent development because all down through the years it was commonly accepted that uh, there was the supernatural, that God does uh, intervene and control the affairs of men and that uh, he did reveal himself in a supernatural way to certain individuals that wrote down his message, and that message is now preserved for us in, in the Bible. And this um, this worldview that uh, rejects the supernatural is uh, very powerful in our modern world today. Before the modern scientific age, miracle and prophecy were regarded by Christians as absolute proof of divine uh, authority of the Christian religion, but now. Many, many people in our modern age, <clears throat> miracle and prophecy has come to be regarded as obstacles to the acceptance of Christianity by scientifically trained individuals. So there's been a persistent effort to eliminate the supernatural from the Bible, as I'm sure you're, you're aware of. Or at least, at least to minimize the impact of the so-called supernatural, or to ignore it as much as possible. And textbooks that are written uh, on the Bible and that are used in uh, in uh, classes that <clears throat> that teach uh, the Bible, and they minimize the uh, impact of, of the supernatural. For example, this introduction to the Old Testament, written by Robert H. Pfeiffer he was a uh, professor at harvard university for a number of years and he wrote this introduction that became very popular among many many people and it, it uh, expresses the the uh, modern uh, modern view of the bible and uh, he <coughs> he believes that the uh, book of isaiah was not a single not written by a single individual but by several individuals um, he um, <clears throat> he was able to influence a great number of people by by his teaching at Harvard University and and by the writings that uh, he produced. Uh, <clears throat> the modern critical scholars reject the supernatural due to the influence of the scientific uh, period, as as we um, indicated, and uh, and <clears throat> this. Uh, you see in the middle of there that R. H. Pfeiffer, who wrote this introduction to uh, to the Old Testament, uh, who said that the traditional theory of accepting the book. Now he is actually writing this in connection with the book of Daniel, but I. But his uh, his statement can apply to the book of Isaiah as well, I believe. He said that the traditional theory by accepting the book at its face value necessarily presupposes the reality of the supernatural and the divine origin of the revelations it contains. Prediction belongs to the realm of the supernatural. Historical research can deal only with authenticated facts which are within the sphere of natural possibilities and must must refrain from vouching for the truth of supernatural events. And so, in this way, they try to minimize the uh, the idea of the supernatural, and it takes away the force of the su- of the idea of a supernatural uh, prediction. What it comes down to this is uh, uh, to get rid of the supernatural from Christianity is, in fact, is to get rid of Christianity itself. And because, uh, after all, Christianity is a supernatural. Religion. So if you get rid of the supernatural, then in effect you are getting rid of Christianity. Let's uh, consider uh, some attempts to try to eliminate prediction from prophecy. One of the best examples of trying to get rid of the idea of predictive prophecy is found in the Hastings Dictionary of the Bible. This is a standard Bible dictionary that is uh, used uh, uh, quite extensively. And in an article is written by an Edinburgh professor named A.B. Dav- Davidson. He was a leader in developing and popularizing the critical theory regarding prophecy that is so widely held and accepted in these days. He said, the prophet is always a man of his own time. And it is always to the people of his own time that he speaks, not to generations long after, nor to us. And the things of which he speaks will always be things of importance to the people of his own day. And this is the widely accepted view of the nature of a, of a prophecy, is that a prophet speaks to the people of his own day. And he was not at all interested in things that were going to happen far off in the, in the future. He was a um, a professor at a New College in Edinburgh for nearly 40 years. And in his lectures on prophecy, he uh, impacted tremendously the religious thinking throughout the English-speaking world. Uh, this quotation from his article in this Bible dictionary expresses clearly and precisely the two great principles that dominate the theory of prophecy that uh, his teaching and writing do so much to popularize uh, the, these views over the years since his time. And these two principles are, number one, emphasis on the situation of the prophet. And number two, limiting the scope of the prophecy. Uh, <clears throat> we'll, look, we'll look at these um, <clears throat> Uh, uh, in a little bit uh, detail to explain what is meant by the emphasis upon the situation in which the prophecy is made and also trying to limit the scope uh, or the influence of the prophecy. So what is meant by changing the situation of a prophecy? Prophecy. If a certain alleged prophecy was made many years before the event actually occurred and later an event is described as the fulfillment of that prophecy, then the prediction must really have been made much later than is stated, shortly before or even after the event in which it took place. So whoever predicted the freeing of exiles of Cyrus must have lived the time of the Persian king and actually recorded history rather than predict a future event. Likewise, those passages that seemingly predict the Babylonian exile must have been written by someone who lived at the time of the exile. Or if the situation given the biblical record seems to... Be suitable for a certain prediction, one might allege that the prediction did not actually refer to some distant future event, but was a general, vague, indefinite statement about current events that were later edited, revised uh, by a, a future writer or amplified by a future writer who, for various reasons, wanted to give special importance to these later events by claiming that they were, were actually a fulfillment of an ancient prediction. In this way, by changing the situation of a certain prophecy, modern critical scholars attempt to remove the predicted element from prophecy. Now, <clears throat> that is, that is how, uh, what they mean by, uh, uh, by the situation, and changing the situation of the prophecy. What about the scope? Reducing the scope of a, and the definiteness of a, of a prophecy. One of the best examples of trying to get rid of prediction in prophecy is found in the Hastings Dictionary of the Bible. This is a, a rather standard dictionary of the Bible, used quite extensively. In an article on prophecy written by, the, well, we've already, really already been, been over that. Let's look at the scope we were talking. Uh, that, again, is, uh, is what uh, happened to the idea of the situation of the prophecy. But the scope and definiteness of a prophecy to, uh, uh, in, in reference to future events. Critics sometimes get rid of the predicted element of a certain prophecy by reducing its scope and definiteness. And the classic example of this is how critics have handled the passage in Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, that we all remember as uh, being a prediction of the virgin birth of Christ. And we'll look at that in a little more detail a little bit later. But uh, this is a prime example of how modern critics try to limit the scope of a passage. According to the critical theory... The interpretation of this Emmanuel prophecy is stated very briefly by the Westminster edition of the Bible. It says, quote, referring to verse 14, the word virgin. It says, the Hebrew word means a young woman, old enough for marriage. The prediction is that nine months hence, a mother will name her newborn son Emmanuel, that is, God with us as an expression of faith that God is with his people to save to save them. Uh, you see in this quotation that there's no indication that this is a prediction uh, 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 or that it is a messianic passage at all. It is to be fulfilled in nine months rather than many, many years later uh, on into the time of, the, of Jesus himself. And so, in this way, it reduces the scope of the prophecy—not some far-off future prediction of a virgin birth—but uh, the scope is simply within nine months is going to be fulfilled. With regard to Matthew's claim that the birth of Christ actually fulfills this this uh, prediction in uh, in Isaiah, uh, the same volume uh, in the New Testament section briefly says, uh, referring to Matthew chapter uh, one verse twenty-three. See uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the word virgin. Hebrew word means young woman. The Greek translation of the, uh, of the Old Testament, that is the Septuagint, is followed here by Matthew. The Isaiah verse originally spoke of a birth in Isaiah's day, is here in Matthew applied to Jesus' birth. Now note in this, qu- in this quotation that the statement says applied not fulfilled. The word that Matthew uses is the word "fulfilled," but this uh, <clears throat> this statement the use uses the word said it was applied to Jesus, and there is indeed a great difference between the, between the two words. Here's a, uh, a statement from uh, <clears throat> from a person who wrote a study of the unity of Isaiah when he says, "When the scope of prophecy is so restricted." that the element of prediction is largely or wholly eliminated from the bible the glorious predictions of the coming of messiah in his first advent can be no longer be regarded, regarded as messianic and it cannot be said of any of the old testament prophets he spoke of him so that's what happens when you try to take away the idea of predictive element in prophecy so, uh, let's look a little more closely at the word predict. That's what we're using in connection with the idea of, of a prophecy that the, uh, quite often the prophets do predict things that will happen in the future. And uh, the word predict is used in the ordinary sense of foretell, to tell something beforehand that's going to happen later on. The prefix pre in the word predict is like the Greek prefix pro in the word prophetes. And by the way, that word prophetes, that is the Greek word for prophet. And notice that it has only one S on the end. This is not referring to a prophetess. Prophetess has two S's on the end. This is the actual Greek word for prophet. Prophetes is how it's pronounced. And this this word with the prefix pro has both a local and a temporal force to it. Um, The prophet may be both one who foretells, that is, tells beforehand, and one uh, who speaks for or interprets another, speaks for another person or in behalf of another person. And this is the emphasis that is being made today by modern creation, that this is what the meaning of a prophet is, that it's simply someone who speaks in behalf of another. And, of course, this this is a, a legitimate use of the word. We can see in the Bible itself that this is described how sometimes the the prophet uh, prophet that takes, a, takes a, that's, if you'd like to turn to, to uh, the, the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 7 verses one and two <clears throat> we have a, a description of uh, the activity of a prophet. Exodus chapter one Exodus chapter 7 verse one, the Lord said to Moses, "See, I have made you like a god to Pharaoh." And your brother Aaron will be your prophet. Now, why is Aaron a prophet to Moses? Because Aaron speaks in behalf or for uh, Moses. And um, turn back a couple more uh, pages before that uh, in Exodus in uh, <clears throat> in uh, see in Exodus uh, chapter four and verses fifteen and sixteen. We we have a, a further description of the. Of the activity of a, of a prophet, <clears throat> this is where you know you remember the story of Moses, how he was hesitant to, uh, to go go to uh, Pharaoh and to ask Pharaoh to let the people go, and uh, the lord uh, said <clears throat> uh, Moses pleaded to God to let someone else go in his place uh, not not me i don 't want to go and the lord uh, <clears throat> then uh, <clears throat> said that, well, if you don't want to go, then why don't you take along Aaron, your brother, along with you, and he will speak for you. I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be uh, glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth, and as if you were God to him. <clears throat> now that is uh, describing the activity of a prophet, one who speaks in behalf of or for another. So, uh, <clears throat> so in this way, <clears throat> we can see that the, the activity of a prophet is, is pretty much like what we today refer to as the preacher. He's the one who speaks in behalf or for God. And this is a modern popular uh, idea of the activity of a prophet. <clears throat> and the other other aspect of, of the prophet is, is ignored. That is the idea of the predictive nature of the prophecy. So <clears throat> the word predict uh, and the idea of being able to tell things that are going to happen in the future uh, Let's see, okay. Notice what happens in the, uh, 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 let's see, did we read uh, this uh, definition, the Davis Dictionary of the Bible? This, uh, this is from the fourth edition in 1924, in which he describes the English word is derived from the Greek prophetes, the Greek word for prophet, which means one who speaks for another, an interpreter or proclaimer. And one, and, notice this, it says, and also it you know, means one who speaks beforehand, a predictor. This is a twofold meaning of the word, as due to the two senses of the preposition, preposition pro, uh, uh, that means for, and also before. But then notice what happens to a, a later revision of this dictionary which is revised uh, as the uh, westminster dictionary of the bible <clears throat> the second meaning of the uh, of the word uh, prophet is is uh, all but eliminated from this uh, this definition it says <clears throat> The profetis, that is the prophet, accordingly is not a predictor, is not a predictor, but one who speaks forth that which which he has received in the divine spirit. The prefix pro is not temporal. The prophet speaks for or in behalf of another. He is the mouthpiece or the spokesman of God. And then... uh, uh, Added to this uh, uh, statement is the statement uh, uh, that says he is a fourth, a fourth teller rather than a foreteller. So the statement of the older Davis dictionary correctly represents the biblical usage because in the Bible the idea of foretelling is closely connected with the function of a prophet. Uh, so much so, that it's hard to believe that the temporal force of the pro should be ignored or denied. Uh, Let's look at an example or two of how this uh, takes place. You remember the story of the boy Samuel, how he was sleeping uh, one one night and he heard a voice calling him. And he got up and and went to Eli and said, here here I am. You called me and he goes, no, I didn't call you. Go, Go back to bed. So he went back to bed, heard a voice calling him again. Again, he got up, ran to Eli. and He said, here I am, Eli. And Eli said, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. And, and finally, Eli said, well, go back to bed and listen. It's, it's probably God who is calling you. So, he, uh, so Samuel went back to bed. He heard the, heard the voice again calling him, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, uh, here am I. And the Lord then spoke to him, and he revealed to him what was going to happen to the house of Eli because of the things that had taken place in the family of Eli. Um, so uh, when he heard this message, this was a message of foretelling what... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, what God uh, w- uh, was predicting would happen to the house of Eli, and then Samuel went to Eli and he foretold—that is, revealed to e- uh, Eli what the Lord had had uh, spoken to him. So uh, uh, here is uh, is an example of how Samuel was uh, foretold what was going to happen, and then he foretold it to Eli, the message that he received received from God. Here's another example of of, uh, the uh, foretelling. In Acts chapter 2, verses 30 and 31, uh, you remember how Peter, speaking on the day of Pentecost to the Jews, he identified David as a prophet. And then he says of David that... uh, Seeing that, that what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ. And here you can see that the, the preposition pro in prophet is certainly temporal. It would be reserved to, to render it something such as Seeing, What would foreseeing, uh, what kind of meaning would, would that have? So uh, here are two by, uh, examples of how that both meanings of also uh, speaking in behalf of another and also foretelling what would happen in the future is given. Let's look at some of the new testament evidence that uh, <clears throat> that uh, this is the biblical idea of, of prophecy. Um, we can see that uh, that the biblical idea of prophecy is the idea of uh, predicting. Um, I, uh, the New Testament assumes all the way through that the the, uh, the ability of these prophets to predict what would happen in the future was indeed the actual case. Isaiah, for example, is quoted um, by name uh, about, uh, about twenty times more often than all of the other prophets together in the in the New Testament um so we we uh you read down through these these examples here of uh, where the writers of the New Testament quote from the book of Isaiah and identify the author of those words as being by Isaiah uh Paul in Romans for example uh, uh quotes Isaiah by name um, five times and uh, uh from both parts of the uh, book of Isaiah, from both the first part of Isaiah and also from the second part of Isaiah. And he says that these were written by Isaiah, not one by first Isaiah or the other by the second Isaiah, but simply Isaiah. They're one one Isaiah, not two Isaiahs. Um, Luke in chapter 4, verse 17, uh, uh, tells uh, that the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Jesus and he read from Isaiah chapter 61, the second part of Isaiah. It does not say that uh, he handed to Jesus the second Isaiah, but he simply the book of Isaiah as if it was one whole, complete, single uh, writing. And he identifies it as being written by Isaiah. Uh, All four of the the Gospels... uh, Quote Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 and 4, which is in the second part of Isaiah, and um, as being fulfilled by the uh, ministry of John the Baptist. It does not say uh, that they were being fulfilled, uh, that was spoken by the second Isaiah. And This is the passage from the second part of Isaiah, and uh, Luke identifies it as being by Isaiah, not a second Isaiah. Acts chapter um, 8 verse 30, you remember the story of uh, the Ethiopian eunuch as he's riding along and reading from the prophet Isaiah. And the prophet, uh, the um, passage that uh, is identified that he's reading from is from Isaiah chapter 53, which is the second part of Isaiah. The, uh, the Acts uh, verse does not say uh, that he was reading from the second part of Isaiah. Or he's reading from second Isaiah, but he's reading from the prophet Isaiah, which is the um, and the passage he's reading was from from the second part of Isaiah. But he is identified as the Isaiah of the Old Testament book of Isaiah. So such evidence uh, would uh, would indicate that. Uh, Uh, The uh, New Testament writers assumed, uh, believed, that um, the writer of the book of Isaiah was Isaiah, not some other individual that uh, would be identified as a second Isaiah. Um, So what can we conclude from all of this? Now, critics object to the idea that the whole of Isaiah could have been written by the one and only man, Isaiah himself, because there's so many sections in the book that predict things that would happen in the future after the time of Isaiah himself. But by special, divine, supernatural revelation, Isaiah was able to foretell these things in advance. So... We can see that uh, in a way that uh, the unity of Isaiah is, in fact, a proof for supernaturalism because this is the only way that Isaiah could have written these things that uh, were going to take place many, many years after his own time. Um, so the unity of Isaiah is very important to uh, uh, to recognize and uh, As we go through the uh, study of Isaiah and look at various sections of Isaiah, just remember that this this is the one individual Isaiah, the son of Amos, as we indicated last week. That is indicated in the first chapter of Isaiah. And so next week we're going to look at the, the very first chapter of Isaiah in a little more detail. And uh, notice how that this chapter can, in fact, be regarded as an introduction to the entire book of Isaiah. We'll see that the the major themes that appear in the book of Isaiah are actually mentioned briefly right here in this very first chapter. Let's go ahead and read some of these verses. And then this week we'll uh, point out how that some of the things that are mentioned here in the... This very first chapter are themes and ideas that we find uh, scattered throughout the book of Isaiah. In fact, you might even recall, you might call this as a table of contents of the book of Isaiah, this first chapter. Yes, yes. In that time, yes. Do you not believe that they were able to do that? To a certain extent, yes. Yes, they, 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 but, they, but they would say that this is just by, by uh, uh, normal observation well, and insight into the events that take place that they might be able to predict what might happen in the near future. But they, if you can predict something, even in the near future, mm. you can predict it. It's, it's like... Well, Mm-hmm. days, you know, I there's a lot of discussion about that. Yes, but the but the truth of it is, if God can do it in a million years, you mm-hmm. can do it. Yeah, do it in six in a, in a short time. Yeah. If a prophet can has the power from God to predict five years, five God, years. Life, Why why not, uh, why not yeah. a hundred years, yeah. A five hundred Yes. yes right the first part that's, that's more dark and the second part that's more predictive. Yes, exactly. Yes, the Dead Sea Scrolls is a modern uh, a modern contribution to uh, uh, to the uh, idea that the book of Isaiah is a unity. It, there's, there's no division in the Dead Sea Scrolls between a first Isaiah or a second Isaiah. It, it's uh, identified as one whole complete book. Mm-hmm. So uh, <clears throat> with this background then to the uh, book uh, Book of Isaiah as being one complete unit written by the one man, Isaiah. Uh, we can go ahead and, and look and see the things that he had to say about uh, both aspects of his activity as a prophet. He, yes, he he uh, talked about things that related to the people of his own time, and he also talked about things that would happen far in the far distant future. Uh, as an introduction to our... our uh, Discussion next week, let's go ahead and read a few of these verses from uh, the first chapter of Isaiah. Um, <clears throat> beginning with verse 2, this is the beginning of, of the actual uh, message. <clears throat> Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I reared children and brought them up, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's man manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, oh, sinful nation, a people laden with guilt, a brood of evil doers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel. And turn their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head. There is no soundness. Only wounds and welts and open sores. Not cleansed or bandage are soothed with oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons. Like a city under siege, unless the Almighty had left us survivors, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah and He goes on uh, through the rest of the chapter there to mention things that there will be later developed in the in the book of Isaiah uh, as he comes comes back to these ideas uh, over and over again a few times in the <clears throat> And his uh, message to the people of, of his day okay that'll be our our, our uh, material for for today uh, anyone have anything they 'd like to like to add or yes thirty nine books yes Were you here last week? Oh you, we we pointed this out. That's exactly right, yes. And, uh, whoever of course the uh, the original Isaiah was not written in chapters and verses. Now whoever who divided the Bible up into chapters and verses, I don't know if he had in mind to divide the book of Isaiah up in this way, but that's true. Thirty nine Chapters in Isaiah, you might say, correspond to thirty-nine books of the Old Testament, because in that first half of Isaiah is talking about God's dealing with the people in the Old Testament times. The 27 chapters of the rest of the book of Isaiah, the last part of Isaiah, the 27 chapters, kind of correspond to the New Testament, because in that section of the book we have a strong emphasis on the uh, restoration and the promise of salvation which of course is fulfilled in the new testament by the salvation that uh, is promised there and the, the, the uh, 27 chapters of the uh, of the rest of the book of isaiah then kind of correspond to the 27 chapters of the uh, uh, of the new testament uh, in in um, that second part of isaiah we read about the new heaven and the new earth and that, of course, is what uh, is mentioned in, in the New Testament. So it, <clears throat> I don't know if the um, person who divided the book of Isaiah into chapters had that in mind when he divided the book into 39 chapters and then 27 chapters. But anyway, just, uh, it may be just simply coincidence that it turned out that way. So yes, that's right. That's exactly what happened. Okay, it's uh, it's time uh, that we uh, bring this to a close and uh, get ready for our worship service. So, so we hope to see you again next week.